I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Great to speak with you. Yeah, good. I understand you read the book Mere Christianity. Yeah, that's right. I read uh, the, the book Mere Christianity by the author C.S. Lewis. Um, it's a classic book within the Christian canon, and it was really uh, interesting to, to read. I'd read it before many years ago, and it was fun to revisit it. Awesome. So the first question I'd like to ask you about is, tell me, tell us something about the author, a little bit about his background, and why it's significant that he wrote a book like this. Sure, sure. Uh, so C.S. Lewis was actually an academic. Um, he worked at Oxford, both Oxford and Cambridge universities uh, in, the, in the UK. Um, he was a theologian, actually, on the side. His primary occupation was English, was English literature uh, and writing. Um, he's best known for a number of his works, including you know, some of his works on theology, um, like Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity, Miracles, The Problem of Pain. But also he's well known as a fiction author of, of um, you know, The Chronicles of Narnia, for example. Um, so very famous for that. He was close friends with a number of other renowned authors, including J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and yeah, he had a really interesting life. He, um, he lived during, you know, through um, the Second World War um, and the First World War as well. Um, and he kind of also had faced quite a bit of pain in his personal life, having lost his, his, wife, his wife at some point. And so um, he had an interesting life full of triumphs and tragedy. And he distilled some of these lessons uh, into his works. And, and I think you learn a lot reading them. Excellent. All right. So the, I understand that he organizes the book in the kind of two major sections. Let's start with talking about the concepts that he draws on from apologetics. In other words, how does he get to being a Christian and how does he defend that from a logical standpoint? Sure, sure. So C.S. Lewis, really, I think you can partition the book Mere Christianity into a couple of main categories. The first is apologetics and the second is kind of thoughts on Christian living. Um, and so in the first category, as you, as you allude to, this is the apologetics, which is basically talking about how he uses his mind and his reason um, to essentially defend his faith. Um, and this is something that you know has been practiced for for quite for thousands of years at this point. Um, and Sus Lewis primarily draws upon um, a couple of main arguments. Um, the The first one is an invocation of you know, what he calls the argument the argument based upon the moral law, which we'll dive into more depth um, in a second. Um, he also talks about he also presents a very famous trilemma, um, which is very interesting. I look forward to presenting that. And then he talks a little bit about um, you know, the essence of faith and it kind of dispels the notion that faith is about blind you know, belief, um, but actually, actually that we're compelled to exercise the reasoning capabilities that God gave us and our rationality um, to you know, understand God and, and his creation more fully. Um, and he also addresses another very famous quibble, um, the, the, the famous problem of good and evil. How can a good God allow suffering in the world? And so these are very fundamental questions that people have been grappling with for millennia now. Um, and he presents some of the most poignant modern arguments that many follow-on works have cited um, and built upon. All right. Would you like to drill down on all three of those? Yeah, let's, let's, let's drill down. So um, the first major category that he, that he talks about in the book is he talks about the, the moral law. and you know, I think actually a little bit of context about the, the context of the book might, you know, might be helpful. When, when this book was written, um, it was during World War II. Um, you know, the British, the Brit Britain was at, was at war. 
Um, this was 1942. And actually, th- this work actually didn't begin as a book. It was actually initially a series of radio broadcasts. Um, so this was a very absolutely challenging moment in British history. Uh, There's the notions of forgiveness, loving your fellow man, you know, morality, the essence of morality. These were being challenged in a very public way. And so he, I think, understanding that it makes us even more compelling, more interesting. Um, and so he starts off with, yeah, why this notion of we, this notion that we all have an intuitive knowledge of what he calls the universal moral law. Um, and so the way he explains this is he says, essentially, when there, whenever there's a disagreement, we often have we often invoke, um, you know, some notions of justice or fairness, right? We often say that's not fair, you know, or um, otherwise criticize um, the other person. And very rarely does the other person in, in the dispute respond with, you know, to heck with your morals or, you know, you know, who said life's not fair or yes, I'm being dishonest, you know, but does it matter? There's no morality anyway. Um, they often attempt to justify their actions um, or explain why you know, their actions make sense. Um, and so this is kind of a universal property. You know, we all intuitively sense that there are you know, some objective standards of morality. So as Lewis claims that these standards of morality are essentially common across time and across cultures. Um, some, some have claimed, some moral relativists have claimed that morality is actually kind of something that's in flux um, and that differs quite dramatically across cultures. Um, and although some of the particulars of how different moral ideas are executed can be a little bit different, um, the similarities between moral systems is much greater across cultures than, than, it, is, than it is different. And C.S. Lewis kind of responds to this, you know, I guess one of the most popular potential responses might be, well, think about some of the atrocities of the past or think about how you know, a kid must be taught by his parents proper conduct. I mean, C.S. Lewis responds to this by saying, well, yes, you know, a kid must be taught proper conduct, but a kid must also be taught his multiplication tables. Um, and so just like how the laws of physics are discovered um, and have been discovered over time, and we've increasingly you know, broadened our understanding of the scope of the, of the laws of physics, and we have a broader understanding of both the very large and the very small in the last in the century in which C.S. Lewis was writing, and that was when we were first beginning to understand cosmology at larger levels, things like general relativity. A lot of Einstein's most famous work was becoming known at the time, and then also you know, we were just kind of just beginning to enter the quantum era of physics, and so we were just beginning to understand the behavior of the very small. And so, just like how our understanding of physics broadens in depth and in scope over time, our understanding of morality and the the bounds of morality. Um, also can can broaden. And yes, a kid might have to learn some aspects of moral conduct. And so, yeah, he makes this, this point that you know, we all have a deep sense of morality and that this must be placed within us, perhaps. If this is something that's true, it must have been embedded within us, um, you know, perhaps, by, perhaps by the creator of the universe, which is, which is interesting. There's, um, I think he makes a very, a very strong point that you know, without uh, some type of moral you know, moral law giver, there is no such thing as objective morality. Um, you know, we're just, especially if we're just biological machines um, acting out you know, pre, pre-programmed routines, the whole notion of morality falls down. So it's a very interesting point. Excellent. All right. Can you talk about um, your second point that you sure. said you presented in this apologetics category? 
Um, the famous thing of Jesus is either a madman or um, he's who he said he was. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The, what, uh, what's often, what's often, what's been called the, the trilemma. So this is the idea that you know, the first, one thing I want to establish is that the historicity of, uh, of Jesus's life is well-established. Um, it's not really disputed among any scholars of history or of the old Testament, whether atheist Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, that Jesus Christ was a real person and that you know, many of the details of his life as recorded in the Gospels you know, were, were, were accurate. Um, and so you know, we know that Jesus is a real person. We know that he taught the things that he is recorded as having taught. Um, and so you know, many people might respond to that. If you're, if you're not a Christian, the way you might respond to that, to that fact, that set of facts might be, you, know, you might claim that um, you know, Jesus was a good person, a great moral teacher, but he was merely a man. Um, and C.S. Lewis actually kind of points out um, a very, a very clear fact that you know, unfortunately, Jesus. There, there's a couple of things. That one, one, one of only three things can be true about Jesus. Um, given that so much of his teaching revolved around, for example, the merits of the virtues of humility and meekness. You know, we have to note that if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, then the very, the very last characteristics that we would ascribe to him would be humility and meekness, given his claims about being divine. And so the way he, he, he characterizes it, he presents a number of these details, kind of contrasting Jesus's teachings with some of the possibilities um, of who he was. And he kind of finishes with this very famous quote, which is, Quote, I am trying to prevent, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was nearly a man, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has, thus, he has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. I mean, he, he fleshes that out in a lot more depth. That's essentially the essence of it. And I think um, it's, a, it's a great point. And anyone who you know, understands the fact of Jesus' existence and who appreciates the power of his teachings has to reconcile with that trilemma. All right. So the third category that you mentioned in this area was the problem with evil. And you drill down on that as well. Yeah. So what his teachings are in that area. That's right. Yeah. This is, it's a, this is a argument that this problem of evil, I must note, is not something that based on modern scientific revelations, we're just now able to pose. This is something that has been posed since the very, beginnings of theology and has been addressed very thoroughly by scholars, by, by Christian scholars or Jewish scholars, et cetera, throughout history. Um, I also note that many great scientists of, of, of previous eras have been Christian, um, you know, Newton, et cetera, as we've talked about before. And you know, these were arguments that were completely within their, within their capacity to ask and to pose and to do Apple with as well. So uh, I just want to note that these are things that have been, has have been discussed and talked about for a very long time. 
um, and many have, have grappled with this and found the answers too compelling. Um, and so let me, let me step back and um, so to address the point. So the question is, you know, how could a, a good God allow suffering and pain in the universe? You know, clearly we live in a, in a world that's full of evil, um, for lack of a better word. Um, and so how could a good God who is both all good and all powerful allow suffering? Either he is too you know, weak to stop the suffering or he is not good enough to desire to do so. That's the claim as it's been, as it's been poised, um, posed, several, posed several times. Um, the counter to that, I guess, point, um, so there's a couple of counters, each of which is kind of compelling in its own right. So one is the first question, which the defenders of, of theology might, might, might invoke is, well, how do you know that something is good or bad? Right. What is, you know, and that kind of harkens back to this moral law notion, right? That are that are looking at pain and suffering and saying this is this is bad, or looking at some injustice in the world and calling that injustice, in a, in a deep way, uh, requires some knowledge of that. Which number one, you, know, you must know that that must come from somewhere, and then that doesn't say that it comes from a an all good God, um, but perhaps that there is a moral law there. So that reinvokes that notion. Um, now, second, um, the point, another point that has often been invoked is. There's part, a lot of evil in the world arises because we have free will. Um, and you, know, you can talk about why do we have free will? Why is that important? Um, that could be an entire topic all its own. But it's important to note that one of the defining characteristics of humanity, according to Christianity, is our free will. That we're made in God's image and we're given the ability to, to, to dictate our actions um, and to choose God or to not choose God, to choose morality, to choose its opposite. And you know, without that choice, you know, there would be no, there would be no evil, but there would also be no, no freedom, um, and that's a, a very kind of core notion that would be worth diving into all its own. Um, I guess another you know, counter might be, well, what about beyond the evil in the world, which perhaps could be ascribed to human actions? What about the kind of natural suffering, right? You know, hurricanes, tsunamis, you know, kids born with with diseases, etc. And you know, this is a very difficult thing to grapple with. Um, you know, particularly emotionally, um, and, I, and I must distinguish between, between the emotional and the intellectual response. Right, the emotional response is, you know, it's incredibly difficult to grapple with and to understand at an emotional level suffering in the world. Um, but at an intellectual level, I think it's quite readily understandable. Which is a couple of things. So first off, there is no dilemma um, in the notion that an all good God. You know, would also allow, who's also all powerful, would allow suffering, um, because there's one thing that's missing from that description of God. Not only is he all good um, and all powerful, he's also quote unquote all wise, right? And so, you know, you must note that first off, if you accept, if you were to accept, you know, th- that argument that you know God is a contradiction is basically using a notion from mathematics called proof by contradiction, which you're trying to essentially use the definition of God to disprove the possibility of God. But if you use the complete definition of God, and you're assuming, since we're already assuming that these first few these first few attributes of God, if you assume if you inspect the entire definition of God, which would include this all wise description, and then you try to do this proof by contradiction, it falls apart. Because if you assume that God is all wise, then you would have to note that perhaps there is a plan to suffering, and that He uses suffering um, to for higher causes. And I must note that this is part of basically every moral code in human history, everything from Stoicism to Buddhism 
to Hinduism, to Christianity, you know, so many moral codes um, that have arisen across human history have sp have spoken to you know, the the merits of pain and discomfort for growth, for spiritual growth and intellectual growth and personal growth. Um, that's a very core attribute of so many different moral systems. Um, very few moral systems you know, preach the, the benefits of pure comfort and luxury and um, and you know, la and lack of work ethic. Right? It's not very common. Um, one other thing on Vogue on that note is there have been a lot of interesting studies actually very recently that have looked at happiness um, and have actually found that um, the actually looked at one, one interesting example looked at the happiness of someone who had been hit with a terrible accident versus someone who won the lottery. And shortly after the event, it found that you know, perhaps what we would expect, the person who won the lottery was very happy and the person who had been had, who had been um, the victim of a terrible accident was was very sad. But a year after the events, um, interestingly, the some in many many cases, what you'd expect was reversed. Where first off, everyone was kind of reestablished to some baseline happiness, which is this is um, something that's been talked about in many different contexts. But essentially, this kind of hedonic treadmill notion, if you've heard of that term, but basically is the idea that we all have some baseline level of happiness that we return to. Uh, very quickly, and essentially, yeah, even someone who's been who's been hit with a terrible accident will return to some baseline level of happiness. And in many cases, actually, people with terrible accidents found themselves happier because the accident allowed them to perhaps adopt a mentality of of thankfulness, or brought their family and friends closer and allowed them to see the people who were around them who cared about them. To uh, whereas the people who won the lottery um, sometimes experience the exact opposite, where they their winning of a lottery invited scorn or envy from those around them, and they actually the happiness declined relative to previous, relative to prior to the winning of the lottery. And so, I just want to invoke that to note that, um, in many cases, suffering actually is a is a path to you know, greater happiness or personal or spiritual growth. And you know, so, if you invoke this notion of God also being all wise, you know, just those small examples perhaps allow you to see how perhaps. It's all "quote unquote" part of God's plan. Okay, right. now let's. That's a great jumping off point for the next point in the book, the next major category, which was some points on Christian living. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I'll, I'll touch on you know, a couple of points of Christian living. Um, actually, before I do that, I want to, to want to note a couple of other things, which is you know, I kind of mentioned this is related to the apologetics, but C.S. Lewis also talked a little bit about faith, and I thought it was very interesting. Um, C.S. Lewis said, God, quote, is no fonder of intellectual slackers than he is of any other slacker. And that faith, in the sense in which he uses the word, is, quote, the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Um, and so I must note that C.S. Lewis, in many quotes, many verses within the Bible, um, also actually don't speak to faith about being about blind acceptance. It's actually about it requires exercise of our reason. But jumping off from there to talking about uh, Christian living, C.S. Lewis made a lot of interesting points about pride and knowing God that I found really interesting. And also he made some interesting points about love and marriage. On the pride and knowing God side, you know, he said that you know, as, long as, you are not as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Quote, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see that which is above you. End quote. He also said, quote, pride gets no pleasure out of having something. 
only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. I find that really interesting because you know, it notes that pride is a, a zero-sum notion. I mean, it isn't boundless. It isn't infinite. It isn't something that can, that can grow um, for, for where everyone can, can grow in, in the wealth of it. It's something that is inherently zero-sum. And I must note the alignment between his quote about how if you're proud, you can't see that which is above you, somewhat aligned to famous Bible verses and very controversial Bible verses, um, such as Matthew 19.24, where it says, and again, I say unto you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that's an oft-quoted verse, and it's often quoted to say that God hates the rich, which isn't, I don't think, what's trying to say. There are many quotes within across Proverbs and others that actually talk about you know, the merits of wealth, perhaps not pursued for its own sake, but how you know, someone who pursues wealth, wisdom um, and who is disciplined uh, will often find wealth. Um, but I think actually what it was really trying to warn against is something that is touched on also in Matthew, in Matthew 6, um, 19 through 21, where it talks about how one should not store, it says, quote, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in to steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? And so this notion that you know, that's why it's difficult for a rich man to enter heaven um, because he's perhaps you know, his, because his pride and his self-worth and his treasure are all um, on earth and wrapped up in earthly things. Um, so I found that to be a powerful reminder to be particularly wary of pride. Okay, that's very good. Those are two very good points. So now the last thing I'd like to ask you about is what are the key takeaways that you're going to take forward with you and apply to your life and that you think others should be particularly interested in as well? Sure. So I guess I'll touch on a couple of things here. So on the love, in the love and marriage category of Christian living discussions, I found a couple of things really interesting that I want to take away you know, to my relationships. And I think one thing he noted was that he talked about marriage and what is marriage and why the Christian view of marriage perhaps seems so prudish to people outside the religion. And he made some really interesting points about marriage being a promise um, and what that really means and the importance of that. And so one point that he made was, you know, knowledge can last. He said, quote, knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go. But of course, ceasing to be, quote, in love need not mean ceasing to love. Love in the second sense, love as distinct from, quote, being in love, end quote, is not merely a feeling. It is the deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit. Reinforced by, in Christian marriage, the grace which both partners ask and can receive from God. Quote, being in love, end quote, first moved them to promise fidelity. This choir love then enables them to keep the promise. It is on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was the explosion that started it. So he makes this distinction between you know, the, the feelings that so, our culture often speaks of, of being in love and being enraptured um, in that emotion, and the that the verb, right, as opposed to that the description, the feeling, the thing that happens to you, just falling in love, the verb of being in love, of sorry, of maintaining love, of loving someone, and of uh, maintaining that habit. Um, he then talks about how the promise, quote, made when, in, when I am in love, and because I'm in love, to be true to the, belo- to the beloved as long as I live, 
commits me to be true even if I cease to be in love. A promise must be a bit about things that I can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling in a certain way. He might as well promise to never have a headache or always to feel hungry. And so he makes this point that you know, we, we can only promise things that we'll do, that we, that we have control over, right? Um, and so I found that very interesting, and it made me you know, realize, um, I guess, why marriage is, is a, why the Christian conception of marriage is, is so unique. Um, so that was one thing. And then another thing that I want to take away was, you know, so I think some of his points on apologetics were, are great, were great ideas to take away to, to buffet our faith against you know, the affronts that the world often throws at us. Um, but I also thought he made some interesting points about, you know, yearning for, for God in, in, in our lives. And he talked about how he had a very interesting quote that I loved where he talked about how the Christian says, quote, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not pr- prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it go, never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to keep others and to help others to do the same. He then says, "This the feeling kind of talking about how the, our feelings for meaning must have a must have some object." He says, "If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and there were no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would only dark would be without meaning, right? And so our yearning for for meaning um, is something that you know we shouldn't look to fill with things of this world. We should really." understand that you know yearning for this for something beyond ourselves is something that can only be found in god and to pursue that um you know with rigor and with with zeal and so that's another thing that i want to take away uh, from this book all right well that's an awesome summary jq i appreciate it very much thank you for your time thank you hi thank you for listening to this brief we have plenty more at christianbrief.com That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-B-R-I-E-F dot com. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And hope you check out some of the other briefs at ChristianBrief.com.